Well, good morning. Morning. It's good to, good to be with you this morning. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the elders in, here at Hope Community Church as well as the, uh, the youth pastor. So uh, if you don't know me, it's usually because I'm hanging out with uh, all of the wonderful teenagers that like to hang out in this quadrant of the building over here. Um, so yeah, if I don't know you, I'd love to, love to get to know you. So please come say hi and, and uh, love to get to know you better. Um, it is my, my privilege this morning to get to share God's Word with you. Um, and so, without further ado, please open your Bibles to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, that's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 44, and because we love God's Word here at Hope Community Church, we're going to read the whole thing, okay? All right, this is what God's Word says. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them, speaking of the forefathers, you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land. Nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. And all day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sound of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back and nor have our steps departed from your way, and yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself and do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, 
Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we spend these next few moments together looking at this passage, we ask God that you would convict us of our sins. And we also ask, Lord, that you would convince us of our need for Christ, of our need for you, that we would daily seek to be sustained and satisfied in you. Father, as we give ourselves to your word now, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the message. Lord, we ask that your word would move swiftly from our ears to our hearts, that it may move from our hearts to our lips, that your name may be praised, honored, and glorified in all that we say and think and do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if there's anything that I have learned since becoming a parent, uh, it's that kids, they, they all share this really special talent, especially at the, the toddler stage. And this special talent is that they are really, really good at finding ways to injure themselves. I don't know if you've experienced this, but my daughter just recently started walking, and so it seems like every five minutes she's falling over into something. It's like every day you're, wondering, you're just wandering around on the verge of an anxiety attack. It's like, don't hurt yourself, please. Not again. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is when your kid injures himself or herself, there's, there's an instinctual response that you see when this happens. It's like, get hurt, scared, instantly turn to mom or dad, right? You know this? Uh, in our house, it's mom, uh, because my daughter hasn't figured out that I can be comforting too. <laughs> I don't know what's up with that. Like, I can, I can give hugs, but she's, she's like, mama, all right, fine, be that way. But... I can't say that I blame her because usually when I'm hurt or scared or crying, I go to her mom too. So, you know, uh, take that for what it's worth. Um, but it's this instinctual desire to go to mom or to dad that we actually see in the heart of the psalmist in this passage as well. You see, what's going on is that there is, uh, Israel's being defeated in battle. Israel is being overrun. And, and so Israel is experiencing this oppression, this difficulty. And rather than giving up and, and throwing in the towel, we see the psalmist here, rather than turning from God, he turns towards God and he moves in further and he inquires and he, and he, he questions, he asks the Lord, what is going on? And that's the heart of the Christian. That's what we ought to be doing when, when we experience trials and tribulations and tragedies and difficulties. It, rather than turning from God and, and looking to our own devices and our own abilities and strength, instead, we ought to, by God's grace, turn towards him and say, Lord, help me understand. Help me submit to your will for my life. And that's difficult to do. In fact, I just read a quote recently from a, a guy who was a, a philosopher, and he was trying to reconcile this reality of the existence of God and the existence of evil and suffering. 
okay? And he, he couldn't reconcile these two things. He couldn't believe that, the, that if the evil and suffering exists, then, then the traditional God can't exist, right? This is what he says. He says this, if a good and powerful God exists, then he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God cannot exist. And his attitude is pretty typical. It's something that, that some of us have experienced, though maybe not consciously, but, but there are moments when we can get so discouraged when we think, you know what? Clearly God doesn't care about me in this moment, so I'm just going to figure it out on my own. Right? We, we cease to believe in the God of the Bible who is sovereign over all things, who is in control at all times, and we think clearly what God has said about his love and his kindness and his grace, clearly that's not true because if, if that were true, this wouldn't be happening to, happening to me. And so we, we become discouraged and, and we turn away. But what God is calling us to do in this passage is rather than turning away in the midst of trial and tragedy and suffering, is he's actually calling us to turn towards, to face him, to come into his presence and to process in prayer the things that are painful in our lives, the trials, the difficulties. And so this passage, Psalm 44, is a little bit, I'll give you some context here, it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to date exactly when it was composed, okay? There's a lot of, a lot of um, different opinions on it. I'll give you two reasons why I think that this passage, uh, that this chapter in particular, was written prior to the Babylonian captivity. The first is verse 17, where it says this, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. That is not something that the author could have said later on in the history of Israel because we know that the further along in Israel's history, we know the further and further they get from the Lord. And so that right there is an indicator that this could be a psalm that was written prior to that, that judgment that the Lord brought when, he, when the Babylonians came and carried uh, the southern kingdom off into captivity in Babylon. Another reason for thinking that this psalm could be uh, pre-Babylonian exile is actually found at the end of Psalm 72. So I don't know if you guys know this, but the psalms are actually divided up into five books, Okay, so this psalm here is situated in the second book, okay? And at the end of the second book, in 72 verse 20, it says this, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, okay? So those two things make me lean towards a, a pre-Babylonian exile, possibly even close to the time of David composition of this psalm. However, there are people a lot smarter than me who disagree with that, and so I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. But regardless of whether it was written prior to the Babylonian captivity or after the Babylonian captivity, the message really is the same, and it's this. The people of God, they're doing their best to be faithful to him, and they are still suffering in the midst of remaining faithful to him. 
The people of God, they're doing their best to be faithful to his covenant, to their, to their relationship with God, and they're still suffering, even in the midst of being faithful. And isn't that something that we all need to hear, that we all need to, uh, to have our hearts encouraged by? Because many of us, experience, we all experience trials and tragedies of different kinds, and uh, oftentimes we look at at the, the sum total of our life and we are just trying to know, love, and follow Jesus, and bad things just happen in our lives, right? You, you get that uh, phone call from the doctor and you get that diagnosis that you were not expecting, and you say, Lord, why? I'm just, I'm just trying to love you the best I can. Why is this happening to me? Or you have a relational crisis, maybe strife between a husband and wife or between you and a child. And you say, Lord, I just tried to love you and tried to raise my kid the best way that I know how. Why is this happening to me? Or maybe it's a financial crisis, loss of a job, loss of a financial opportunity. And you say, Lord, why? This doesn't make any sense. I'm just trying to love you the best I can. And here's the truth. We need to know how to respond in those moments. We need to know how to respond in those moments. And the wonderful thing about this passage is it teaches us how to respond. And the main theme of this this sermon and this message is this, is that since life is filled with trials, we must remain prayerfully dependent on God. That's what the psalmist teaches us in what he is communicating to us, is that since life is filled with trials, we must remain prayerfully dependent on God. And if that is the case, then we should ask the question, how do we do that? That should be the next logical question. How do we remain prayerfully dependent on God when our trials seem so overwhelming? And the psalmist gives us three things that we can do in the midst of our trials in order to remain prayerfully dependent on God. The first is that we need to remember God's power. We need to remember God's power. Second, you need to reiterate your troubles. You need to reiterate your troubles. You need to restate them. You need to talk to God over and over again about what's going on in your life. And thirdly, we need to request God's help, okay? So remember God's power, reiterate your troubles, and request God's help. Let's talk about that first one. Remember God's power. If you look with me at verses one through three, we see the psalmist here, and he says, he says, oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what you did, the, what deeds you performed in their days, In the days of old, in verse 2, he says, You with your own hand, you drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. And so the first thing that we see here is that the psalmist, he is recalling 
the mighty works of God. He's recalling the powerful working of God when God drove out the nations before the Israelites and then planted them in the land that God had promised to their forefather, Abraham. And then you see a little bit of a transition actually in verse 4 where he personalizes it and he says, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. And he says, through you we push down our foes. Verse 6, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes. And what's significant about these, this section of verses is the fact that really the author, he, he puts God as the protagonist of that story. A lot of times when we think through these Old Testament stories, we're like, yeah, Israel went in and conquered the land. And that's not how the authors of Scripture actually see it. They're like, yeah, guess what? God did it. God did it all. And that's the perspective of the psalmist here. He says, he says ultimately, I mean, in, in, you know, if you want a, a short way of, of summarizing it, he says, God, you did it all. We were the recipients of your grace. You bestowed this land to us. And what's important to note from this section is that the psalmist, who's experiencing real trials, real tragedy, they are being overrun and overtaken by real enemies who are actually attacking them. And in this moment, he is recalling, he's remembering God's power in the past so that he will have hope in the present. He's remembering God's powerful, faithful working in the past so that he will have hope in the present moment. And the psalmist, he's, he's speaking with God here, and he's not, he's not saying these things to God because God forgot what he did, okay? God did not, he's like, oh yeah, I remember, yeah, I, I, did, I did drive out those nations. That was, that was pretty great. Like, no, that he, God did not forget what he did. What the psalmist is doing is he's reminding his own soul of the sovereignty of God in the midst of his sufferings. That's what he's doing. He's reminding his own soul of the sovereignty of God, of the the control of his heavenly father in the midst of his sufferings because that's what we need to believe. That's what we need to know is that our father loves us and he's in control at all times. Even when life looks like it's outside of your control, and newsflash it is, but when it looks like it's outside of your control, it's not outside of his control. It's always in his hands. This is our Father's world. Amen? I was speaking with someone recently, and uh, they, were, they were talking about how, um, how they knew that they could run a marathon. And uh, this person that I was speaking with, they had all these medals, and, and they've run you know, several marathons in the past. And what they said to me was actually really significant because they said that they knew that they could complete a marathon in the present because they had completed several in the past, right? They knew what sort of diet they needed to be, uh, you know, adhering to in order to run a race. They knew what sort of exercise regimen to implement in order to compete in a marathon, So past experience informs present experience, okay? And that's what we see the psalmist doing here in these first eight verses. He's recalling the powerful and mighty working of God on behalf of his people in the past, 
reminding himself how God sovereignly worked to bring the Israelites into the land because his own soul needs to remember that when it looks like things are really, really dark, God is still on the throne. God is still in control. And that is something that is so crucial for us. We need to remember that. We need to have our hearts encouraged by that reality. So my question for you, as you're pondering Psalm 44, and you know, later this week as you're pondering this sermon, because I know that's what you do throughout the week, you ponder the sermons that your pastors give to you, correct? That's what I thought, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, my question for you is this. In your moments of trial and suffering, when you're really going through it, do you remind yourself that God is still on the throne? Do you remind yourself that God is still in control, that your Father still loves you, that He's still working all things together for your glory and for His good? For His glory, your good? I'm dyslexic. We need to remind ourselves that the Lord omnipotent reigns, especially in those moments when we are really going through it because there can be a temptation for us to functionally act as though our might and our power will see us through the trials that we experience. And the reality is is that what God is calling us to through this passage is a humble, prayerful dependence upon him and his power to see us through our trials. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we see is we see that we need to reiterate our troubles. You, as a follower of Jesus, need to reiterate your troubles to God. Look at verse 9 with me for just a minute. And he says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foes and those who hate us have gotten spoil." Drop down to verse 17 with me for a minute. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. And so in this next section, really in verses 9 through 22, we see that after the psalmist has remembered the mighty power of God faithfully at work in the lives of the his forefathers, as well as in the lives of, of the nation of Israel in general, we see that he begins to talk to God about the things that are going on in his life. And in fact, if you just read through just a cursory glance here at verses 9 through 22, he finds a lot of different ways to say the same thing, which is ultimately, God, this is, this is going on and I don't understand it. This is happening, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. If you look at verse 9, it says they're being defeated in battle. You've not gone out with our armies. If you look at verses uh, 13 and 14, it says they're actually being taunted and laughed at by the surrounding nations. And then if you look in verse 15, it says they're actually in this place of utter shame and disgrace. And if that were not enough, okay, the really difficult thing for the author of this psalm to, to swallow, the difficult pill that, that, uh, that he's having a hard time swallowing, as he says, all these things are coming upon us, but we haven't broken covenant with you. In other words, we're holding up our end of the deal, so why is this happening? 
right? If you look in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, you see that God actually gives this promise to Israel. It says that if you are faithful to the covenant, if you, if you love me and if you are, if you are faithful to me, I will go out with you when you go to battle. And a little bit later on in Deuteronomy, he says that you should actually only expect to be defeated when you're unfaithful. When you're disobedient, that's when you should expect to be defeated in battle. And so we can actually, we can feel the tension here on the part of the psalmist because he's looking at the nation of Israel and by and large they are, uh, according to him, living up to their, their end of the, of the deal and it looks like God is bringing the covenant curses the, uh, that attend disobedience to the covenant. It looks like God is disciplining them, even though, from his perspective, they're tr- just trying to be faithful. So in his mind, it, it, makes, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and here's what's going on in this, in this particular circumstance. Derek Kidner, is a, he's a Hebrew scholar um, and, a, and a commentator, but he talks about this passage, and he says that, that momentarily, what we have in Psalm 44, it's, it's like the curtain is kind of being pulled back, and we're seeing kind of what's going on behind the scenes, and he says this, he says that, that God's people are caught up in a war that is more than local. They are caught up in the struggle between the kings of the earth and the Lord and his anointed king, okay? You catch that? Essentially what he's saying is that the nation of Israel, because they are in covenant with God, that puts them at odds with the world, which is in the sway of the evil one, as 1 John says. And so because they are aligned with God, they are experiencing suffering. This is a a normative part of the Christian life. Jesus said that a servant is not greater than his master, and so if the master is treated a particular way, then we ought to expect that we will experience similar things. And this is something really that we see, this is a theme that runs all throughout Scripture. We see this antithesis, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the city of God and the city of man. And so really, what it comes down to, it's not that Israel, it it has nothing to do with their faithfulness to the covenant for why these, or, or lack thereof, for why these things are coming upon them, but rather it has to do with the fallenness of this world. That the nations, that this world is in rebellion against King Jesus. This world is in rebellion against its creator. And so because of that, we who are, by God's grace, have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, sometimes we do experience suffering simply because of the fact that we belong to Jesus. And so what we see the psalmist doing here is we see him coming over and over again to the Lord. Lord, this is going on. Lord, this is going on. Lord, this is going on. 
He's reiterating his troubles over and over again. He comes back to the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't get disheartened. He doesn't get discouraged. And he doesn't, for a moment, at least that we can see here, think that his father is irritated with him coming back to him over and over again. He feels comfortable coming back to God over and over. And that's what we need to do because that's what you do when you have a relationship with someone. You share what's on your heart, what's burdening you. I think of the, uh, the scenario between Adam and God in the beginning of the Bible. And uh, Adam hides, right? And then God comes to him and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam's like, I hid because I'm naked. And, <laughs> and uh, God's like, who told you that you were naked? Did you do the thing that I asked you not to do? And he's like, uh, actually, she did it. Uh, and what's interesting about that exchange, though, is God didn't need the information that Adam was sharing with him. He already knew, right? But he wanted the relationship. He wanted the interaction. He wanted Adam to talk to him about what had happened. And I think the same is true and, and is being modeled for us in this, in this psalm as well is that when you have trials in your life, when you have difficulties, whether it's the kind of difficulty that is just a normal part of living life in a fallen, broken world, or whether you have legitimate trial because you are a follower of Jesus, the message is very clear. God loves you and he wants you to talk to him about those things. He wants you to come to him over and over again and he wants to hear your heart. So, question number two for you as you're thinking about it this week. When difficulties come your way, when trials or, or, or tragedies or, or sufferings come your way, is it your instinct to go to God and talk to him about it? Is it your instinct to go and talk to him about it, to pray? Or is it your instinct to just go and figure it out on your own? Because if it's the second one, you're not living a life that's prayerfully dependent on God. In fact, if it's the second one, what's revealed is that we think that we're independent, that, we, that we've got this. And that's not what God is calling us to. He's calling us to live prayerfully dependent upon him. And one of the ways that we do that is we talk to him about the things that are going on in our lives, the hard things. And the reason that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wants this for us is because he tells us in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, or excuse me, 1 Peter 5, verse 7, it says this, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Are you going to God with the things that are going on in your life? Third, third point here. We see that not only does the psalmist remember God's power, not only does he reiterate his troubles to the Lord, but then he requests God's help. That's the, that's the way he concludes this, this psalm. If you look at verse 23, he says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. 
And do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Drop down to verse 26. He says this, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And so in these last few verses, we see the psalmist moving into what is called a petitionary prayer. He's petitioning. He's asking God to help. And this comes after he's remembered God's power and his character. He has, he's talked to God about his troubles, and he's, he's honest, with what's going, honest with God about what's going on. And then he says, God, help. Will you help? And what's interesting is he's, he's really honest about the things that he's feeling. See, in verse 24 and 25, he feels truly abandoned and forgotten, right? And the psalmist, ultimately, he appeals to God's character. He's, essentially, he's, if you look at verse 26, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In other words, he says, God, I know that you are faithful. I know that you love me. Be who you are. Do what you have promised to do. He doesn't ask God to do anything other than than what God has purposed to do. He doesn't ask God to be anything other than than who he is. He just says, God, be who you are. Some years back, there was a phrase that was was really popular. Um, I asked a couple of my students, I guess it's still a thing. Um, But the phrase was, you do you. You guys heard this before? You do you? No? All right, cool. Um, and that, so this phrase that was going around, but it was the idea of just, you know, just be who you are. Just do what you want to do, right? And uh, uh, several years back, I was a youth pastor at a, at a different church, and I had a youth leader who would say this all the time, you do you. Finally, I, I, I said, you know what? You don't want me to be me because I'm a sinner. I'm a wretch. You don't want me to be me. What you want is you want me to be like Jesus, because Jesus is the only one for whom that statement is not a nightmare. <laughs> and so the psalmist, he's asking God ultimately, he says, God, be who you are. I know that you're loving. I know that you're faithful. I know that you've promised to rescue your people from danger. Will you just be who you are? And so what the psalmist does is he goes to the one who has the power to help and he requests that that God help him in the midst of his trials, help the nation of Israel in the midst of his trials. Question number three for you as you're thinking about this, is this your instinct every day? Whether it's a big trial or a little trial, is it your instinct to come to the Lord daily and say, God, help me through the big, the big difficulties and the little difficulties, right? It could be something as simple as, Lord, help me not to say what I want to say when I'm in the midst of traffic, right? Help me, help me to glorify you with the words that are coming out of my mouth because sometimes I don't, I don't uh, say the right things. It can be as simple as that or it can be you are experiencing sickness or you are having a, a family member that is, either has passed away or is, or is in the process. They say, God, help me. Help me to glorify you 
and to point others to your gospel in the way that I respond in these moments. Ultimately, what this psalm shows us is that we can and we should go to our heavenly Father for help in the midst of our trials and sufferings. So as we conclude, at the beginning we spoke about how toddlers have this instinct to go to to mom. And and we said that that instinct, it should be our instinct as children of God as well. When life is scary or when, when we experience hurtful things, rather than turning from God, this passage tells us to turn towards God, to seek relationship with him, to seek comfort from the God of all comfort. But the truth is, is that many of us in those moments, we actually struggle to pray. Over time when we experience loss and and suffering, we, we struggle to pray because there's this nagging subconscious thought that creeps in and says, God doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about what's going on in your life. And so, over time, we lose heart and we, we stop praying. We stop reiterating our troubles. We stop remembering his power and we start looking inward and trying to figure things out on our own. And that deeply rooted fear that God doesn't care about you or what you're going through can only be ripped out and replaced with the good news of the gospel with the fact that Jesus loves you and he died for you. Believing in that is the only thing that will uproot faithlessness, that will uproot discouragement and will plant faith and hope and love. It's all about what Jesus has done for you and for me. You see, in this psalm, the psalmist simply felt like God had forgotten and abandoned him. But God had not forgotten or abandoned Israel. But on the cross, Jesus Christ truly was forgotten and abandoned. The psalmist said that he felt like Israel was sheep for the slaughter. Jesus is a lamb of God who was slaughtered to take away the sin of the world. Why would God do this? So that you and I, as his people, would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you, that he's with you, and that you will be with him forever. And it's only through believing in the gospel that we will find courage to remember God's power, to bring our troubles to him, and to ask for his help. Because we look at what he has done for us in the person and work of Christ, and we think, if God is willing to do that, what is he not willing to do for us? Amen? It's only when we believe the gospel that we will remain prayerfully dependent on God in our trials. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to dig into this passage. Lord, I pray that the truth of this passage 
would shape our hearts, would shape the way that we respond in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our trials and, and, and tragedies. Lord, I pray that you would help us to go to you and not to turn away. Help us to remember that you are in control. Help us to remember that we can talk to you about the things that are going on in our lives. And help us to remember that we can ask you for help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.